Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Pirate Monk Radio Show, back on the air, coming to you live from high above the Mellow Mushroom in metropolitan downtown Franklin, Tennessee, and from multiple undisclosed locations around this great land of ours. Uh, Yes, it is true. We are, you may be listening to this uh, through iTunes or one of the other portals to the great world of uh, podcasting, but we actually record live and are therefore able during this hour to take your phone calls. If you've got a comment, you've got a question during the course of the hour, call us at this number, 347-850-1769. A number that on your dial pad spells... Absolutely, Absolutely nothing. nothing. You know, I we also thinking. take recipes, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we do. We're, we're assembling the Pirate Monk recipe book. Oh, are we? Uh, that sounds oh, good. Really? Yeah, that okay. sounds good, yeah. Um, you know, I got thinking about this. Uh, that's such a difficult number to remember. I have to look at it every day, and it's uh, every week, and it's right on my screen, 347-850-1769. You know what? I think we need to set it to music. I think we need a ditty, a song Ah. of some kind. If we knew anybody musical at all who could set that to a memorable little melody, that would be very helpful. Mondo Grimes. Have you ever heard of Aaron Porter? He's awesome. (laughs) Mondo (laughs) Grimes. I think you guys are fighting each other for the privilege of doing the Pirate Monk radio show uh, so we need a we need a jingle for the phone number. Is what we need. We need a jingle for the phone number. So, okay, all right. So that is awesome. How are you guys doing this week? Uh, you know oh, what? Good, man. All right, for an old guy, spring has sprung here in Franklin, Tennessee, and that always helps my mood. Oh yeah, good old eighty-three degrees today, buddy. It's gonna be great. That hey, is hey. great. You know, I actually at during homeschool, I took Samuel to Solvang, which I know oh, Nate, you, you, yeah. You have been to Solvang, and I uh, we we were reading uh, Keats. We went hiking and uh, we're studying poetry for homeschool. So we were reading Keats, and we were reading uh, his Ode to Autumn, and I had to actually explain seasons <laughs> to him, and we had to Google pictures of autumn. Oh, and I, I felt I felt it. kind of bad for him. Yeah. So. We did. We we Googled uh, the Smoky Mountains yeah, in okay. in fall. So there you go. Spring has sprung for you. Looks the exact same here, but uh, I believe spring has come. I'm taking your word for it. Oh man, Ooh. there's a, there's a thin film, a greenish, uh, yellowish film of pollen uh, yeah. over my car this morning. That's a sure sign. The, the trees are leafing out. Uh, lots of flowering trees are blossoming. Uh, yep. What were you going to say there, Mondo? Yeah, man, I have a black car, and actually it was quite uh, green this morning, yeah. kind of a lime green vibe. It was pretty interesting, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> my my sinuses also alert me when spring comes. Oh, yeah. Oh, my yeah. voice deepens, sure. yeah, yeah. Very well, good. Uh, Aaron, what do you got on the agenda for us today? Anything interesting happening in, in the big bad world this week? Well, I want to, we want to keep our pirate monks up to date on what is happening in the world, how to live as Christian men in the world. So I scour the news to find out, and uh, there are a couple interesting things. Fox News is uh, keeping us up to date on how to be better parents. There is a new study that came out this week that is going to help us as parents. Those of you that have teenage children... Uh, They just came out with a study that says watching television. Now, track with me on this because this is a new study. There's no way you could have figured this out. Watching television may cause teens to be overweight. No! 
I wonder yes. what the link is. I, I know. Yeah. I mean, can you believe it? Okay. So I was very thankful to find that out. Yeah. But even bigger than that, you, obviously, these are teenagers because in Germany, some thieves stole five tons of Nutella chocolate spread from a trailer. $20,000 worth of Nutella. Obviously, huge television watchers in Germany. <laughs> they were so hungry. That oh, are, yeah. Somebody had a bad case of the munchie, munchies. I know. Big pot yeah. smokers, big TV yeah. watchers, $20,000 yeah. worth of Nutella. Amazing. So, I don't know. Did you guys hear about Rick Warren's son this week? Yeah, we did. Uh, I don't know whether Mondo did, but I got the news that uh, was it his is it his youngest son who uh, took his own life this last week, or I think on Saturday. Yeah, Friday night or Saturday. Did you hear about that, Mondo? Okay, uh, Mondo is silent. Yeah, go ahead. So, yeah, Rick Warren's son took his own life either Friday night or Saturday. He had been uh, suffering from depression. Yeah. And it's bringing up a lot of important conversations. But what a what a hard thing for the church to really face that yeah. issue. Yeah. Because and, and that I know that was something that is close to your life and your heart, Nate. Yeah. And so yeah. I was. I definitely thought that is something that I wanted to hear kind of your response yeah. to that. Yeah. What how how should the church be both sympathetic and empathetic and also proactive? Yeah. Yeah. Um I, I want to be careful not to go to judgment those who are, you know, critical of Saddleback or Rick Warren, uh, you know, there's always it's amazing how all the snipers come out. Um and want to lay this uh, a failure at the feet of the parents. I'm sure we live in a broken world. And um, I, we don't know what was going on in the life and heart uh, of this young man, what pain he was in, what drove him uh, to that decision. And I don't want to presume ever to know. I do know the pain of losing some, not a child, I lost a parent to suicide. And so, um, and it's an anguish uh, that goes on and on. The ripples spread for years. Uh, you know, my mother took her life uh, 45 years ago, and we're still feeling the effects of it in our family. So the Warren family and all that are connected with them are going to be affected by this loss. Um, I think we, we just need to go to sympathy and uh, uh, intercession on behalf of the family. Uh and I don't know whether Rick and his wife will be tempted to try to replay uh, history and try to rewrite history, or whether they'll be tempted to go to self-condemnation or hatred or any of that stuff. There are just so many scripts that open up when somebody takes a life. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm so far removed from the situation that I don't feel I can comment on it intelligently. All I can do is uh, you know, convey compassion to another family, another Christian family that's, uh, you know, encountered tragedy. What went through your heart, uh, Aaron, when you got the news? Yeah, well, I definitely felt the pain of uh, the possibility that people would be judging, uh, especially those outside the church that would say, See, those Christians don't have anything better to offer, or those inside the church that will be judging in other ways. And just uh, instead of realizing there's a lot of brokenness and pain for everybody, yeah. and uh, and sometimes for pastors and their families that just uh, are held to an inappropriate standard that in their times of pain just can't grieve and yeah. have the normal process that they need. So. Yeah. yeah, I just wanted you to get to speak to that, as uh, there are a lot of people listening that go through their their processes of depression and tragedy, just like anybody else, and they need need to know that there's compassion and hope and comfort out there in the yeah. body of Christ. So. And let's, you know, let's uh, 
let's use this as an occasion to open our eyes. When we walk into church next Sunday or if we go to the building sometime between now and then, we're going to be encountering people in pain. I wasn't aware of it really until I got into recovery and became a person safe enough that other people began to reveal their pain to me. It's amazing uh, the pain that, that individuals and families function with on a daily basis. And uh, my experience is that um, there's a shortage of compassion and caring uh, within our Christian communities. I've not been a good lover. I've been so self-centered that I've not stopped often enough to consider the weight that other people are carrying, the grief, the fear. Uh, The truth is everybody out there is fighting a private battle of some kind and is in some kind of pain. And we can be a redemptive force. And it really is, I've found that it's healing for me. When I extend compare uh, compassion concern to another person not how you doing but how is it really going um and then take the time to listen uh that's healing for the person i'm talking to and it also is healing to me well um let's end this segment right here we'll be back in just a moment here on the pirate monk radio show Yo-ho, yo-ho, a pirate's life for me. We gush, we plunder, we rifle, and we drink up me hearties, yo-ho. We kidnap and drive and don't give a hope, drink up me hearties, yo-ho. Yo-ho, yo-ho, a pirate's life for me. Okay. One, two, but that's okay. All right. We are back. I think you caught the end of some uh, backroom conversation there. We're still figuring out the control board here at the uh, Pilot Pirate Monk Radio Show. Hey, by speaking of that, you know, I made some comments last week about uh, the decline in sound quality. It's very evident uh, to me and to others here in the home of all things musical in Nashville. Some concern that uh, the decline, you know, we, we uh, uh, that it might sound as though we're broadcasting from outer space now that we've gone to this web-based call-in radio format. You know what? I got some good feedback from, uh, on that question this week. Several people uh, writing in to say, please uh, don't worry about the sound quality issue. One guy wrote to say, on my list of priorities, sound quality is about number 147. I'm concerned with content, and you guys are bringing it. We also got this letter from a, uh, from a friend, guy we've heard from before. He writes, hey, it's Pepe. I hope all is well with the Samson podcast. I try to listen as much as I'm able with my current work schedule, but I often find myself weeks behind. Thank God for podcasting. Just wanted to update you all on my progress. I'm doing great. I'm falling in love with Jesus day by day and learning to allow his love to be what defines me not my past, current, or future sins. I love the blog that you featured in last week's podcast. You remember that one from uh, Jamie, the very worst missionary? Loved it. Uh, Loved oh, it. yeah. She said, uh, uh, he writes, anybody who questions the theology in that piece, piece needs to read the Confessions of St. Augustine. There was so much truth in that blog that I needed to hear. Thanks for reading it. Uh, he says, in my last email, I discussed with you guys about pursuing ministry and trying to find an environment that eliminated the BS from church. I'm currently working at a church serving as a youth pastor assistant and a video production editor guy. It's been a wonderful experience in a place where honesty is allowed. I don't have to pretend to be perfect or happy all the time. It's been a great blessing, a great job. I'm so thankful for all of you guys and for the people God's placed in my path. I'm not sure where I'd be if I'd not stumbled upon IamSecond.com, heard Nate's story. Actually, I do know. I never would have read his book. Probably would still be stuck in deep moralistic deism. Oh, I love that phrase, moralistic deism. Trying to fight the battle of selfish ambition and idolatry all by myself. Praise God that's not the case. I'm learning more about freedom because I'm in relationship not only with guys, but with a living God who loves me for me. Can't ask for more than that. Thank you so much. And he writes, by the way, I love the new podcast format, and I haven't noticed a quality difference in the recorded podcast uh, to the live ones. 
So keep up the great work. There's a guy I didn't even notice. Can you believe that? Uh, uh, let's let's read that letter every week. Can we do that? That was like that was awesome. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, by the way, if you want to call in, if you are listening live, if you remember that we are on the air from 1130 to 1230 Central Time now every Wednesday like clockwork, uh, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, especially if you have uh, a comment or a question to address to our guest, we are privileged to have with us on the show today, Jonathan Darty. The founder of Be Broken Ministries, uh, based in San Antonio, Texas. Jonathan, welcome, welcome to the program. Thanks, Nate. I'm glad to be here. I got to tell you, man, I love the. First of all, I love the name of the ministry, Be Broken Ministry. I love that you're not the head of Be Fixed Ministries. Right. <laughs> uh, well, our our mission is pretty simple, and it kind of states it in there about healing sexual brokenness by God's grace, one story at a time. Yeah. And so we we want people to know we're not afraid or ashamed of your brokenness. So and God isn't either. So we want to we we're all about trying to create atmospheres and environments where broken people can be broken and go through the process of recovery without any shame associated with their brokenness. Oh, so fantastic. Now you 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 spread the word through um a syndicated radio show, also an internet radio show that I assume is available as well in podcast format. That that is uh Pure Sex Radio. Right. Uh, you travel the country speaking, and you also uh, have assembled over the years. You've been doing this a while. When did you start? Well, full-time in 2003. That's when we founded the ministry. Wow. Um, but I've been doing support group ministry since about a year after my own recovery started. Uh, so in 2000 is when I started doing some group ministry in my church. Wow. It sounds like you and I entered the big, wonderful world of recovery at about the same time. Uh, and you, you have, uh, Lord, used you. One of the things that you've done is is uh, help to construct or compile or at least connect a network of um, support groups and helping professionals that you can plug people into around the country. Is that right? Right, because we we kind of we feel like the best uh, environment for recovery from sexual addiction is going to ultimately be eyeball to eyeball. <laughs> yeah. As, as awesome as technology is nowadays. I mean, with things like Skype and, you know, websites and telephones and all that kind of stuff, uh, we don't feel like there's anything that will ever replace just the the vibe, the dynamic that happens when you're physically in a room with some other people. Yes, absolutely. I agree 100%. Um uh, you've got a book out. You've got a number of books out, uh, but the one that I just finished and loved uh, once I got past the title, the t- because I didn't know you, I read the, the title scared me a little bit. The Four Pillars of Purity. Uh, and I it's, hope not, it's, it's not connected with the Five Pillars of Islam, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> and you're quick to say that purity purity is not perfection. Right. Right? Right. Absolutely. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, but, I feel like, because, I mean, ultimately I believe there's only one who is pure, and that's Jesus Christ. Um, yes. And so... Uh, we're not, yeah, I try to really debunk the myth about perfectionism and that people a lot of times have a perfectionistic model towards recovery. Mm-hmm. That's saying, listen, recovery must be about me performing perfectly all the time, otherwise I'm a failure. Yeah. And we're like, we try to help people see that as, no, 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 there's only one who's perfect and nobody is coming after him that's going to be perfect. Yeah. And so it must be more about progression and growth, that we can grow in the purity that God gives us. And yeah. so uh, we try to help people understand that recovery is more about resting in the perfection and the purity of Christ instead of trying to obtain it in our own effort. Yeah. Uh, what I loved about uh, this book, The Four Pillars of Purity, is that you really took a principled approach and you have communicated in very accessible, uh, everyday language, common sense biblical principles, how to think about recovery, uh, more than a paint-by-number, uh, you know, fill-in-the-blanks, uh, you know, com- you know <laughs> complete the steps and you're finished kind of a thing. Yeah. Uh, just 
uh, I loved it. It's a it's a it's a short book. It's an easy read, but it communicates the essentials. And uh, why don't you do it? This well, there's so much I want to ask you, but I, I'll tell you what. Before we go there, I'm about to take another break. Uh, Mondo, if you're listening, um, I want to read you a letter that I think will give you some uh, jumping off points. It's not a letter, really. It's a story. It's a Samson story. I recently asked our Samson community, I asked guys to send in stories that we could edit, publish a collection that would give some encouragements to other fellows. Before you read that story, what questions... Would you want people to be thinking of for Jonathan that they might call in with uh-huh. in the next fifty minutes? Okay. You know what? What this, questions would, should they be thinking about? I want to. I want to dub Jonathan the Prince of Practicality. Um, I, I, this is a man who's got an, a, a deep fund of uh, practical understanding as well as a biblically principled uh, approach to recovery. And if you're kind of stymied, uh, you've hit a wall in your recovery, uh, you're a bit confused about which direction to go, uh, we got a sage on the line, and this would be a wonderful time for you to call in and pose that question. So if you have practical questions concerning your principles and pillars, call the prince at 347-850-1769. That's 347-850-1769. The prince is standing by. And now our letter. All right. Here we are. Yeah, not a letter, really. This is a story. Uh, Settle back. It's a little bit long, but I think it's worth it. It was a Friday morning, early in September of 2002. I was sitting in a local restaurant, the normal Friday meeting time for my men's accountability group. This particular group, like many men's groups, wasn't a true accountability group, but to say we were in a group with such a label made it appear as if we were doing all the right things. Friday morning breakfast was a great time to advertise to other men that you, like them, were in a group doing spiritual things. I was there early, seated, sipping hot coffee and waiting anxiously. As the guys slid into the corner booth beside me, we made small talk and laughed a bit. In my heart of hearts, I was scared and nervous because I was about to reveal something to this group that I'm sure no one was prepared for. Although my nerves were welling up inside me, there was also a sincere, urgent desire to share, to confess, to lift the veil of secrecy that had shadowed my heart for the past nine months. So much of my heart yearned for someone to listen and to understand me. I wanted to rid myself of something that had become like a cancerous tumor in my life. We began eating and talking about our everyday lives as we always did, and I simply made a statement like it was any other statement in a normal conversation. Guys, uh, I need to tell you something. It's not easy to say this. I've been involved with a coworker for eight months, and I just revealed it to my wife recently. I scanned the booth as an uncomfortable silence fell over my friends, and then I dropped my gaze to the table in fear of getting emotional if I made eye contact. I'm not sure what's going to happen, I said, but I'd appreciate your prayers. I'm probably going to need some help to get through this. Also, I want each of you to know that I was the guy who always said I would never do this to my wife. So please, guard your marriages. It can happen easier than any of you can know. I don't think anyone is immune to this sort of thing. My words were met with another long silence. Eventually, someone piped up and said, uh, man, we'll be praying for you. Let us know if there's anything we can do to help. It was the typical pat answer someone gives when they don't know what else to offer, and there needs to be something said to break the awkwardness. I mean, who can blame them? What were they going to say? You idiot? How could you be so stupid? Really? You can't control yourself? Come on, bro, get a grip. After another long silence, someone piped up and said, uh... Oh, I'm sorry. I, uh, okay. I thanked them for their prayers, and I took that awkwardness and broke the silence. I, I said, I guess I need to share with you how all of this happened, how I, I ended up here. First, let me tell you, this was something I never planned, never pursued, never sought out. It really wasn't. I know this is hard to believe, but honest, it wasn't. 
I uh, made contact with each person, began to feel empowered to move on and tell them more about my situation. I guess it's obvious, I said, that my wife and I have not had a good marriage for the past 13 years. We tried counseling, and when we were there, we both seemed to say what the other wanted to hear, but once we left, we'd go back into our shells for another month until we returned to the counselor. There was no communication, no intimacy, not much but coexistence. The only common denominator bridging the gap between us was our children. I was never attracted to this other person at all. I never thought anything about her was inviting or attractive. We were simply co-workers, nothing more, for seven years. We taught in the same school building. I never made an effort to go out of the way to speak to her until about a year ago. She was pregnant. And I'd stop by her room from time to time and check in on her. It was all very innocent at first. At this point, I wondered if any of these men had ever experienced such a thing. Was I the only guy in the group who'd ever been friends with a female co-worker and had just spoken to her in a casual, non-flirtatious way? I continued. Eventually, these casual conversations would, cat would last a little longer and include humor and subtle questions about personal things like family and teaching. It was obvious that we were both silently understanding that this was a safe and somewhat amusing conversation. My sense as I spoke was that all of this was so foreign to everybody else at the table that they were at a loss for words. So I continued. Well, then she left for maternity leave. She had some complications, and I would ask some co-workers how she was doing. For weeks following the delivery, there were some serious medical problems with her child. And then on a Friday, teachers at the school got the news that her child had died from complications. I wasn't sure what to do. I felt pain for her and for my family, for her family. I felt obligated to visit the family at the funeral home. Looking back, that was the first indication that something strange was about to happen in my life. As I walked through the line of visitors, I simply gave her a hug. I mean, that's what people do when they've lost someone. She was very emotional, and I just told her how sorry I was for her loss and that we'd be praying for her. All of the time, she was clinging to my neck. I was a bit uncomfortable with her husband standing there, but she didn't seem to care, and she continued in an uncomfortably long embrace. Then, as she began to pull away from the hug, she slid her hands down to my biceps, squeezed tightly, and said into my ear, You are my best friend, and I'm going to need you to get through this. I was almost speechless. My response again was simply, Of course, I'll be here. We'll be praying for you. Four months later, she came to my classroom to let me know that she was divorcing her husband and that she wanted me to be the first to know since I was her good friend. Uh, I'm going to skip just a bit, but he says this. In just a few months, my sin had drained me of every bit of spiritual and emotional energy. I felt numb and empty. I would constantly wonder, how would this all turn out? Where would I be this time next year, in 10 years? How would I ever survive this gut-wrenching, awful time in my life? How could I ever have been so stupid to mess everything up so badly? Would my life, my marriage, my spiritual walk ever be the same? The irony is that up until the affair began, I thought my life was intact, that my spiritual life was solid and growing. I'd grown up in church. I'd attended youth group, gone to camps, been baptized, rededicated, renewed. I'd been involved in FCA as a student athlete, as a teacher, as a coach. I'd attended a well-known Christian university where I'd lived in the same dorm wing with the son of a renowned Christian psychologist. I'd married a missionary's daughter. I'd been involved in church ministries and accountability groups. I'd read books like Wild at Heart. My credentials seemed to convert, confirm that all of the experiences in my Christian resume were legitimate. I knew what I was to do and not to do. I understood temptation. I knew about consequences and sin and evil and everything. I thought my knowledge base was enough to keep me out of sinful situations, out of the shamefulness, out of the darkness, the pain, and the sorrow. It wasn't. Shortly after that breakfast meeting, a friend called. He was a pastor, a longtime friend, someone with whom I was not afraid to share my deepest truth. He sensed the anxiety in my voice and the trouble on my heart. 
As we spoke, I could hear compassion in his words and a deep desire to throw me a life preserver. Toward the end of the conversation, he asked me if he could pray with me. And he also said something that would ultimately change my life. He said, Dan, if I knew someone who'd been down this difficult road, would you be willing to talk with him? Before he could finish speaking, I said, yes, I would really like that. I mean, I really need someone like that. There must have been some urgency in my voice because within 20 minutes, my phone rang and a voice said, Dan, this is Kelly. We've gone to church together for some time, but I don't think we've ever met. I want you to know a few things. I know where you are. I know your situation, and if you're willing to talk, I'm willing to listen. He held on to everything he I held on to everything he said in that short conversation as if my life depended on it. In hindsight, I know that in fact my life did depend on his very words. First, he said, "I know what you're going through. I've been there. It's tough. It's a very difficult place to be." I agreed and timidly said, "Kelly, I, I just don't know where to go, what to do. I feel like such a failure." I'm spent. Without missing a beat, he replied, can I ask you a question? On a scale of one to ten, where do you see your marriage right now? After a long silence, I said in a cracked and emotional voice, well, I don't know, somewhere between a one and a one and a half, I guess. He kind of chuckled and he said, that good, huh? I know you're struggling and God has called me to do this. It's not just something I want to do. It's something I have to do to be obedient to God. Can we begin meeting each week for breakfast? My heart nearly jumped out of my chest. Yes, but Kelly, are you sure? I I don't want to be a burden to you. I told you, it's something I want to do. We'll start next Tuesday at 6. Oh, and Dan, I want you to know one more thing. I've been where you are, and you can't out-sin me. I don't care what you say. You can't. I know you're down, but God loves you. And he will lift you up if you let him. That one simple conversation gave me two things that my dying heart desperately needed to hear. That I was loved and that there was hope for my life. Even with all the junk that I'd managed to single-handedly shovel into my life, onto my marriage, my friends, my close family members, there was a simple hope. The one thing I desperately needed and could not find anywhere on my own. That day, I renewed hope, and I began a long process of healing, of building wisdom, of struggling with some of the long-term battles that no one had ever known about in my life. As much pain as I had gone through, this was the first time in a long time that I felt any type of confidence that God would bring me through. It was as if I was standing on one side of a mountain, gazing through a tunnel at the other end, where there was a pinhole of light in a mass of darkness. That pinhole, that light, would have to be my hope, my focus, my goal for the coming weeks of my life. You know, as I read that story uh, uh, today, uh, Jonathan, I thought about a point that you make early in your book, the the delusion, the very popular delusion among addicts, especially sex addicts, that if I just confess it, uh, that's going to solve the problem, and the world, the Christian world at least, will come rushing to my aid. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Talk about the role of confession in recovery? Yeah, I think, uh, unfortunately, there's this idea that confession is all we need. And and while I will never understate the importance of confession, because I think of confession more like opening a door. Um, you can't change without confession, but confession alone doesn't produce change in your life. Yes. It's like you need to confess to bring all that stuff that's in the dark into the light. But I really believe, again, kind of getting back to the brokenness issue, until until I really acknowledge my brokenness and 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 really go on a journey of repentance from that and a turning from and a learning how to heal, uh, then there's really not going to be any sort of significant long-term change in a person's life. Yeah. We think, hey, I just regurgitated, I just threw this all up on the table, and now magically everything's going to actually change. And it's like, well, it's good that all of that gets exposed and it gets out in the light. But then there's a, 
a major rebuilding project that has to go on in a person's life once they've exposed all of their brokenness. Yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, and it's important that that confession be made uh, in the right place and to the right people. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it not? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I mean, later on in the book, I share about kind of some principles of safe people. Because I, I think sometimes we just think, oh, confession is important, and then they just go, you know, blurb, blabber it out to their convenience store clerk or something. It's like, whoa, 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 time out, you know. There's a time and a place for for those kind of things. And, uh, you know, we obviously we're going to recommend counseling as a good place for that, but I think group is another great place where it's sort of a – it can be a kind of a preformed environment that's safe. Yeah. Um, to be able to say, well, the reason we're here is because we're all sexually broken and we need help. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I don't think it's something you just, you know, stand on your street corner and, you know, tell everybody that's driving by about your sexual addiction. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I sometimes so, have to so caution wait, guys. Wait, Go ahead. I want to talk, I want to ask the Prince of Practicality, how uh, do you... How do you create that, especially when folks might not know? I mean, this this guy talked about a group he'd met with for a long time. They had mm-hmm. committed to being that kind of a group, but they didn't, obviously, they didn't know how to be that kind of group. So when it was time to be that kind of group, they failed. Yeah. So how how do they start to develop those tools to succeed in that moment? Well, I think this guy that wrote this story is – is actually modeling how mm-hmm. because okay here he he introduced he went to the deep waters in his group that he'd been in for a long time that had really stayed in sort of the comfortable waters yeah. uh, you know they, they might have gotten up to their necks but they hadn't gone out to the deep end yeah. and yeah. and he took them out to the deep end and then you know I think that's what has to happen there's got to be some guy that says I simply cannot carry the weight of the secret anymore and so if he's already plugged into a type of group like that, I think there's already – there's probably enough safety. I mean, even this guy in his story, there was still enough safety that he was able to say that, even when guys were going, oh, man, let me pull out the cliches and tell you we'll pray for you and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But he kept pressing in, mm. and I think I think he was actually setting the tone for that group. Now, if that group ultimately says, we're not going there, well, then he's now on a new quest. Yes. And and I believe guys need to continue to press in until they find some people like he did with this guy, this pastor friend or that yeah. finally said, "Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to connect with you." Um and that's one of the things I really try to impress upon folks who are who are beginning their journey of recovery is listen, we we give up too easily. We you know, we plug into a group or we mm. start connecting with somebody and they they go, I, I, I'm pulling back. I can't do that. I want to encourage every listener out there, listen, if you're starting the journey, I'm already going to tell you it's hard, but it's worth it. So keep pursuing until you find some people that will reciprocate that kind of depth of conversation. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. here's here's the question, um, and I see this a lot with folks that are struggling with same-sex same attraction. Mm-hmm. So when they confess that or want to talk about that with a group, uh, especially of men, that that's not something they've struggled with, the group often doesn't have any idea how to respond to it. Right. And then they don't want to talk about it. You know, they receive the the conversation awkwardly. Right. And then they don't ever want to bring it up again. Sure. And so I've I've had to say to that individual, really it becomes your obligation, though it seems like a bad deal, you almost have to teach the group how to serve you. Mm-hmm. So how, it, and it's with anybody, I suppose, that's in a group where you're the one taking the group out to deep water and they haven't done it before, how do you teach the group how to follow you out there and meet your needs when ultimately it's going to meet their needs as well? How do you start to grow them and don't give up on them too soon? Or how do you know when to say, I need to go somewhere else? Well, I almost see it as there's there, – I think there's two things that have to go on there. One is the person who's decided to say, here, I'm going to tell everything, and here we're going to the deep waters. I, I need to go out there because I've got to get this off my chest. I think if he's met with that 
that reception that says, whoa, we're, we're not prepared for that, we're not equipped for that, we don't really know if we want to go there. I think that guy also then has to add to his recovery quest a, a, a different group with a context that that's already pre-wired into it, a support group, that kind of thing. And then, not, not to disconnect or, or give up on this other group, but to be able to say, you know what, I've, I've proven that I don't know how to manage my life and my sexuality. So how can I actually know how to train this group, how to help me? So I need to go to a place where I can, where some of that's already uh, pre-wired yeah. into the group. There's already some experience. There's some guys with sobriety and, and length of time in their recovery. And then while I'm still plugged into this other group, then I'm going to be coming better equipped to keep kind of helping them dip their toe in the deep water and know how they can engage their own brokenness and, and have those conversations. So I feel like that that is a um, – it's an opportunity for that guy to train that group, but if he if he adds one more burden to what he's already bearing, he may just get crushed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. Right. So I think it's a process that he has to have some other help for him for himself in a support group, then to be able to be better equipped to help those guys maybe see what they need to see. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan, I was uh, I was just with a, a guy today who's. Uh, on the road to recovery uh, from sexual addiction. It's not the first time he has been down. Uh, not the first. This is not the first addiction he has battled. Uh, this may be the core. Uh, it may have been easier to recover from the others because uh, under the surface, uh, the medication that he was getting from sexual behavior was enough to keep his dysfunction going. Um, one thing that he has never really done and I find this is really common among uh, Christian guys, at least. I don't know whether this holds true for the general population of addicts in recovery. Uh, but he's not done a lot of work in uh, looking at his past, mm. not his own sin or the trauma and dysfunction that he survived as a child. And I, I notice Christians like to, you know, <laughs> Christian addicts, you know, they get in the world of recovery and they kind of adopt the this, this life verse, you know, that, that thing that says uh, – you know, uh, forgetting what is behind, I press on, you know, toward the mark. And, right. uh, so I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to just kind of take it from here and forget that the past ever happened. I find that is such a common impediment to progress uh, in recovery. I'd love to hear uh, what you tell guys uh, to uh, to help them see the importance of doing the deeper work. Well, one of the things that I point out is if you look at the if if you look at the overarching message especially of the Old Testament in relationship of God to his people the Israelites. Guess what? God brought up the past all the time. God Whoa. said, "Remember Egypt, remember Egypt, remember Egypt." I mean, he said that over and over and over to them again. "Remember your slavery in Egypt." Yeah. And so, you know, I don't think God has any problem one of the things that I have discovered on my own personal journey, and one of the things I tell guys is, I said, the unexpected thing that God will do whenever you start your recovery is as you are running as fast as you can to try to get away from all your brokenness, as soon as you reach out and grab God's hand, he's actually going to gently turn you around and start leading you back into your brokenness. Yes. Because he's saying, listen, there are a lot of things that your addiction has masked and covered up and sealed over that are where the deep treasures of who you are and who I am in you can be found. And the mm. only way we're going to get there is we've got to go through all this rubble. Yeah. <laughs> we've got to go through all this mess. And that means you've got to look at your past wounds and your traumas and, and in essence, you could even say your slavery in Egypt mm. in order to then, for one thing, I don't think you can fully appreciate the the growth and the freedom and the peace that can come on the recovery journey if you don't go back to those things. Because as long as there remains you know, unforgiveness and unhealed wounds and unaddressed traumas from your past, they they have a tendency of just kind of continuing to eat away at you. Yes. And and they, they keep inviting you back into these places of sinfulness. And and so I, I tell guys, listen, you're going to have to actually go back into your brokenness, certainly with God leading you and the help of other, other men on this journey, but you're going to have to look at it. Otherwise, you can't really heal from the wounds and move forward. It's more of like 
okay, you're going from one way of pretending to live to just another way of pretending to live in recovery. Mm. And you're still mm. masking over all of the deep, deep heart issues that need to be exposed. <laughs> so well I, said. I love when Elijah finishes on Mount Carmel, his his grand stand against the prophets of Baal and all all that glorious time of the fire coming down from heaven. We forget that he goes into his, his great depression and heading right. down south. And you know he can't he can't even function, and God has to feed him, and and then God keeps you know shows him these great earthquakes and mountains coming down, and gives him the still small voice. And at the end of all of that, he keeps saying, "I'm the only one. I'm the only one." I think it's the New King James that God ends up in the end saying, "Go back the way you came. Go walk the exact same road." And on the way, he finds Elisha. But God makes him walk back the road he just came down in depression. Oh. And I think that is such a great picture of exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. That sometimes I've left victory and walked straight into just the pit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And God God makes me walk the same path out. But on the way out, I find a brother who's going to change everything and mm-hmm. prove that I'm not the only one. Oh, wow. That's okay. beautiful. All right, we will be back. We're going to take a, a quick break here, a quick musical break. We'll be back in just a moment on the Pirate Monk Radio Show. Heard, heard by the pavement starting over. Picking up pieces on our road And burned, burned by the system we are under Giving up is all we've ever known Hope is a word left undefined We are all wounded soldiers Trying to get back on our feet Don't even know the war is over Still searching for relief When are we gonna open our eyes And see we've been All right. And we're back on the Pirate Monk Radio Show. Uh and this uh this conversation is just flying by all too quickly. Jonathan, uh I'm gonna go ahead and ask you now uh to come back sometime in the future and join us uh for a longer conversation. Uh it, it's it's always just so wonderful when I when we meet another brother who kind of shares our recovery DNA um, and who's seen the gospel from some of the same angles that God has shown us the gospel and is working it out in some of the same practical ways. So good to have you with us. Hey, um, you know, I'm very conscious that we have some guys out there who um, download the podcast. It's kind of a lifeline for them. They listen to it in private. Uh, they're on a lonely road toward recovery. And uh, I know there is an enemy of our souls who wants us always to make this personal journey a private one uh, and, and to encourage us, to tell us that we can do it all on our own, that, that maybe maybe the podcast will be the silver bullet, the final thing we need, that last resource that will enable us to defeat this addiction all on our own. Can you speak to that? Uh, yes, I, you know, 
with technology and the things that have happened, I, I'm actually a fan of all these different kinds of social networking and podcasting and all, and all these things are great and they're useful tools, but sometimes these things cause us to believe that we are actually connecting when we're not. Yes. Um, they give this sort of sense like we are connected, like, oh, hey, listen, I, I know Nate and the guys on the radio program because I listen to him every week, and you don't know these people from Adam that are listening right. to the program. And there's this false sense of connection that people have, or maybe they're posting their Facebook page every day and they're doing all these kind of things, and yet they are still living very secretive, disconnected, detached lives. And I'll be the first to admit, I'm I, I'm an introverted personality, I'm actually not. I'm not the guy that says, hey, my first choice is to go be part of a party or be in a big crowd and do those kind of – that's not me. But I've also learned that the only context in which purity can actually thrive, a life of integrity can actually grow, is in community. Yes. And and I've discovered this because it's like every time that I try to sort of drift away and say, oh, you know what, it's just going to be me and God, we can do this thing. God says, but my power is really going to be released over there in that community with that group of people. And over there, it's not that God is powerless or doesn't want to change your life or completely heal you. Mm-hmm. But so many times context matters. And yes. all through the New Testament, he says, love one another, pray for each other, confess your sins to one another, bear one another's burdens. There's all these together commands that he has. And mm-hmm. he's essentially saying to us, you are part of the body of Christ. You're not meant to be detached and alone and think that somehow you're going to be radically transformed. Yeah. And so as uncomfortable as community can be sometimes and, and raw accountability and brutal honesty and those kind of things, it's so good for our soul and ultimately for our integrity and purity. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what do we what do we say to a guy? Because I know we've had some some folks write in and say, "I want that so much, but I live out in the middle of nowhere. I don't know any guys around me that are in the same situation I'm in. I don't know how to get connected." What do we say to that guy? Because I'm sure you've come across. Oh, we come across that all the time. And, right. And so, what do you say? I don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Use technology. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Call. Get it. Be part of a calling group, and we can help people find groups. That, you know, counselors that even do phone counseling. Things where you can still connect. So, so use the resources that are available to you, with the intent that this process is all about growth. And that there will be times when, you know what, God will challenge your remote listeners, your your people in Timbuktu or wherever, to say, okay, you know, you've been you've been gaining a lot from connecting with these guys online or listening to the radio program and, and now let's take one more step and maybe reach out to somebody in your community, reach out to your pastor, reach out to somebody that's local. And and so I think it's still it's all a process. And so I tell guys, jump in wherever you are. Uh, you know, don't say, well, this guy said that eyeball to eyeball is the best, so I guess I can't pick up the phone. No, pick up the phone. Get on your get on your computer and listen to the podcast. I mean, do what you can do with the understanding that it's a growth process. And God will challenge you eventually to step over those lines and, and get plugged into more face-to-face community. Yeah. Do you find, Jonathan, sometimes uh, guys judge maybe they're in a church where men are older. There's, uh, you know, all the guys in the church are in their late 60s, early 70s, and they're in their mid-30s, and they think, ah, there's nobody in my peer group, so I can't connect with them. And maybe they're just, they haven't yet tried to connect, and maybe there's some men who are way more open than they would have believed. Yeah, and and I'll tell you this, listen, if you're a guy in your 30s and you're surrounded in your church by guys that are in 60s and 70s, start talking to those men. <laughs> I mean, there have got to be some guys in that church that have deep wisdom, deep experiences. And yeah. you know, and what I've found is a lot of the older guys, they're just they're hungry for some of these younger men to approach them and start talking. Maybe yeah. they don't feel like they have a context where they can connect with a younger guy. I, I think there needs to be more relationships like that because I'm telling you what, we are, unfortunately, we are tossing out one of the greatest resources we have in our country, and that is our elderly men. Mm. And I think younger guys need to seek out. Yeah, they need peers for encouragement and things like that. But, man, we need those older guys to, to speak wisdom and truth and, and train us. 
you know? Yeah. We, we can get, gain great training for life and integrity from some older godly men. Yes, yes. Even if they're not currently right in this really thick battle of sexual brokenness, we can still gain great help from them. Um, I'm conscious of the fact that we've launched you uh, into this conversation, Jonathan, without um, without properly introducing you or your story. Uh, so let's go about this backwards. I, I'm assuming that you're like me, uh, that as a, you know, as a kid, uh, you said, "Gosh, when I grow up, I want to be sexually broken and have a ministry to sexually broken people." Yeah, you too, huh? Yeah. <laughs> That was my dream at 14, man. How did you know? <laughs> so how did you wind up doing what you're doing? I, you know, now you've got you've got this this uh, radio show that's that's broadcast, and you've got listeners all around the globe in about 80 countries. Mm-hmm. Um, God's using you uh, in tremendous ways. How how did He get you? How did He maneuver you, or rescue you to put you in the spot you're in? Well, I. I'm doing what I'm doing for the same reason that almost anybody does the, this kind of ministry. We yeah. got a story. Yeah. Um, and really, I mean, you know, the Reader's Digest version is that I got introduced to porn at 12 and really started building this secret sexual addiction to porn all throughout junior high and high school. Right. And then it led into sexual encounters in college, even into my early marriage, which I thought marriage was going to cure me. Yeah. And then I went – I went – I went fast and furious down the tunnel of sexual addiction in my marriage to, uh, you know, being unfaithful through affairs and prostitutes and all other kinds of unimaginable things. Yeah. And it was finally when I reached just the bottom, basically, um, that I'm completely alone. My wife left me. Um, you know, I'm completely alone, and all I've got is my junk, Yeah. Uh, my brokenness. And, and that's when God reminded me that, I had been his since I was a six-year-old kid and placed my faith in Christ. Mm. And, you know, he reminded me he hadn't left me, he hadn't forsaken me, he wasn't ashamed of me, and mm. I started a recovery journey in, in 1999. And and really, it was about getting plugged in with other people, and then about a year into my recovery, you know, you talked earlier about that still, small voice experience that Elijah had. It's like God was saying, Hey, okay, we've gone back into your brokenness. We've done these things. I kind of want to walk. I want you to walk this path backwards in order to help some other guys. So he had me start a group at my church, mm. and I kind of thought that was it as regarding like quote ministry. Yeah. You know, that's my way of giving back. You know, start a group, that kind of thing. And then God in 2002 really started to get much more deliberate and intentional about moving my spirit in a direction of of actual vocational ministry. Yeah. And so, so when it took almost a year for me to actually comply, uh then then we started to be broken and and ever since then that's been what I've been doing is just trying to help people see the that there is that every single sexually broken man is worth recovery. Yes. And and just the value that there is in sexually broken people. My favorite night of the week is Tuesday night. I've been part of that group for 13 years. Mm. And it's my favorite night of the week because I get to get in a room with sexually broken men, and we it's one environment we have in our lives where there is complete safety and being totally honest about everything we struggle with. Yeah. And I just wish there were more environments like that because so many guys have come up to me over the years and said, this is the only place that I can tell my full story. Mm. And it's like, well, that's what our mission is. We want guys to have a place where they can tell their full story yeah. because we believe it's worth being told and that the last chapter hasn't been written. Mm. And so we believe that change is possible. So that's how God brought me through this, um, you know, to this point of doing this. Well, Jonathan, uh, we've come about to the end of our time. How uh, can our listeners uh, – Find the radio show. How can they find your books? Uh, if if they uh, are looking for your assistance and a place to connect, what's the best way for them to get in touch with Jonathan Darty or with Be Broken Ministries? Uh, the easiest way is just to go to our main website. It's just BeBroken.com, and all of that information is accessible through there, whether okay. it's connecting with me personally or our resources, the radio, all of that. But BeBroken.com is kind of the central place that they can go to get all of that info. 
Okay. Well, uh, you've been a wonderful guest. I can't thank you enough for joining us, and, I, and I'm serious. I hope that you'll join us again in the future. Yeah. Um, well, I appreciate you inviting me. It's been a great time to share. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to uh, our executive producer, Jay Spiegel, for introducing us. He's been, You've been a huge help in his recovery, and uh, he's been talking about you for a good long while. Can't believe it's this long. it took me this long to find you, uh, but I'm grateful that we've met. Hey, follow us on Twitter. At, at Pirate Monk Radio, friend us if you would on the Samson Society site or on the Samson uh, on the Pirate Monk Radio Show uh, Facebook page. You can also listen to us on Stitcher. Tune in next week when our guest will be Matt Creamer, who will talk about his upcoming trip to Israel. Tell us his story. There's a thumbnail of his story in Samson and the Pirate Monks. He'll give us more of a of a full version, quite a story. And uh, talk about his music, his recovery, his church planning ministry. That'll be a good show next week. Until next week, this is Nate Larkin. And uh, over there in San Luis, it's Aaron. Say goodbye, Aaron. Goodbye, Aaron. (laughs) And our fearless, peerless engineer, Mondo Grimes. Till next week, it's your brothers, your friends here on the Pirate Monk Radio Show. Recovery, say whoa, 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 whoa. Recovery, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, yo, recovery, say whoa.